Hello, it's Friday, November the 12th. I'm Andrew Pearce and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming from the Daily Mail newsroom. Coming up, potholes, the scourge of them. There's more than ever before and very little money, it seems, to fix them. We're also talking about a diet which can help, apparently, halt the rise of dementia. A record number, 1,000 migrants, arrived in the UK on small boats in one day this week. The total number for November soaring past 3,000. I'm talking to the head of Migration Watch UK to see how can we stop it. But first, an extraordinary scoop on the front page of the Daily Mail. Michael Fawcett, who's been right-hand man to the Prince of Wales, his most important advisor and confidant, is resigning after 40 years' employment. He's been involved in what's been called a cash-for-honours deal. So a great scoop on the front page of the Mail today. Michael Fawcett, right-hand man to the Prince of Wales for the best part of 40 years, he's resigned. Joining us for this Mail exclusive is the Daily Mail's Royal Editor, Rebecca English. Rebecca, he's left the employment of the Prince of Wales not once but twice before because there have been controversies, but this time we're told it's for good. Hello, Andrew. Yeah, I'm told there's absolutely no coming back for this from this because not only has he resigned as the chief executive of the Prince's Foundation, he has a his own private company, Premier Mode, that is employed to do organise a lot of the Prince of Wales's entertaining and events. That contract has been cancelled as well by Clarence House. So it is a pretty it's a, it's a pretty deep schism between them now, I have to say. And I've been told we will we will not see him back on the scene again. He was probably the most powerful figure in Charles's um, inner circle, Charles's um, court, if you like. Uh, hugely. I mean, it's difficult to kind of overestimate the significance of Michael Fawcett and the Prince of Wales's life. Um, you know, it's a very lonely job being Prince of Wales. Uh, you're surrounded by people, but there's very few people you can trust. And Michael Fawcett was one of those for Charles. Um, and he, you know, he, he, he wasn't just someone who was in charge of his charity setup. He wasn't just someone who was organizing kind of drinks events and, and dining. He, he really was, uh, you know, a shoulder to rely on. He was his right-hand man. He was his confidant. And I, I hesitate to say friend because I don't think people in that position have many, you know, staff they would consider friends, but came pretty close, I have to say. We can't get into too much detail about the, the controversy over the honour, but there were questions asked back in September about um, Fawcett's role in getting this this donor to one of Prince Charles's charity, um, British Citizenship, and potentially a knighthood. And of course, um, if you link knight, if you're off, if if you're indu- if you're in, inducing people to give money in return for a knighthood, that's a clear breach of the law. So yeah, I think it's probably very helpful to put a little bit of context in here. And I, I must say, there is an investigation going on to this into this at the moment. Now that investigation, it hasn't come back with its findings yet, and that's not why Michael Fawcett has resigned. He's resigned uh, out of personal choice and is not preempting anything that might come out in this report. Nevertheless, you're right to say the allegations against him are very serious. It has been alleged 
uh, by our sister paper, The Mail on Sunday, um, that uh, he offered to support uh, this Saudi billionaire who'd made a donation of one and a half million pounds to Charles's charities uh, to help him in uh, trying to get British citizenship and a, a knighthood, which you're right, they are very, very serious allegations, which is why there's not only an investigation by the Royal Princess Foundation itself, but by also by the Scottish Charities Commission as well, and complaints have been made to Scotland Yard. Just, just finally, Rebecca, there was a story a week or so ago saying that Camilla, the wife of Prince Charles, the Duchess of Cornwall, had turned against him, and you wonder if he just realised time was up. I mean, I've been told this case has taken enormous strain on him personally. He's lost almost five stone in weight and it's been described to me as a shadow of his former self he's really not in a not in a great way and that's one of the reasons why he's chosen to step down because he needs to focus on himself in order to to get through this crisis but referring to uh to camilla the duchess of of cornwall um my understanding is that she felt that you know after this was the third time that her husband who she's very loyal to had you know his his decision making and his the people he put faith into has has been brought into question you know for a third time because of michael fawcett and i think she felt that it was time that her husband moved forward with a clean slate on this absolutely fascinating as you say uh, he's not coming back this time they're big shoes to fill aren't they rebecca Absolutely. I and mean, as I said before, it, it's a surprisingly lonely, lonely position that Charles occupies. And there's very few people that you can trust. And, and maybe now it would be wise for him moving forward, maybe not to put so much trust in one particular person, mm. which affords them a huge, uh, a huge power base within the royal household. And to maybe trust more of those really exceptionally talented people that he has around him. Absolutely. That's the Daily Mail's Royal Editor, Rebecca English, with yet another scoop about the royal family. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. You must remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So a pretty staggering 1,000 migrants reached the UK on small boats across the English Channel in one day. That's yesterday. This number smashes the daily record of 853, which was set earlier this month as the November figure soars past 3,000. The French president, Emmanuel Macron's government, has been criticised for ceding sovereign territory to people smugglers, while others say threats are being made to cut off the £54 million being drip-fed to the French to stop migrants leaving their beaches through increased patrols. Uh, joining me now is um, Alp Mehmet, who is the chairman of Migration Watch UK. Well, how many more of these are we going to have to watch coming in, Alp? If they're making a mockery of our, our immigration laws, we've no idea how many of these are genuine asylum seekers. A lot of them look like um, healthy young men to me with expensive mobile phones. Yes, some of the phones indeed have been provided by us um, soon after they get here. But uh, yeah, yes to all those uh, points that you've made. Um, how many more we'll get? Frankly, the the demand is quite insatiable and limitless in to, to all intents and purposes. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people eventually making their way through Europe and a lot of them ending up uh, on, on the uh, north coast of, of France. 
I, I mean, 23,345 this year. We, we're heading towards 25,000 before the end of the month, which was something that I thought we'd reach by the end of the year. The, the, the government is totally, totally helpless at the moment. Whatever they may say about blaming the French and the French and, and the EU, not just the French, are to be blamed for a lot of this, for allowing it to, to develop uh, in their own territory, frankly. But besides that, frankly, our government has proved quite helpless and hopeless in uh, dealing with, with this issue, which is going to continue to grow, frank, frankly, exponentially. As it has and done. we keep we, we keep hearing the Home Secretary's developing uh, uh, all sorts of ways in which they can turn the boats back. That never happens. And we also hear that the Home Secretary wants to uh, process these these applications when they land on British soil, remove them immediately, take them to a third country. Turkey's been floated, for instance, and process the applications there. Nothing's happened. Uh, nothing's happened, and I suspect nothing will happen. I have no problem with people coming here, migrants, frankly, they're, they're not refugees, the, the vast majority. As you say, um, most of them are uh, able-bodied young men um, looking for a better life. And I can't say I blame them for that. But the fact is, there are immigration rules and immigration laws to deal with that. And what they're doing is going outside that. If Turkey or any other country was prepared to... Uh, uh, allow us to set up processing centres, great. Uh, I, I have no problem with that, and, and we should do it. But the question is, what do we do after that, once they've gone through the due process? Uh, and we find that 70 80% maybe don't qualify, or however many don't qualify. What happens then? Do we then say, oh, well, we can't, we can't take them back to their own countries we can't send them back there they may as well come to the uk until we can find uh, somewhere that will take them and, and that's the whole issue really that we are taking people in uh, we're looking after them while they're here we're providing housing we're providing them with with money as well weekly allowances um, why wouldn't they come if eventually they know that they will not be sent back and they will be allowed to stay here and work indefinitely. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Why are they simply not deported? They are not asylum seekers. They're not genuine asylum seekers. They're economic migrants. We should put them back on a plane and get, get them out. Yeah, we should. We should. Uh, um, the, the, going back even to the days when I was a, an immigration officer, what happened was that if someone arrived at your border and uh, wished to enter but did not qualify in accordance with any part of the immigration rules, then they were returned to the, the country that they came from, to the country that they set off to come to the UK from. That with channel migrants, uh, illegal migrants, clearly at the moment, uh, isn't possible because the French won't pay play ball. Now, the French and the EU, frankly, are, are staggeringly hypocritical in all this, I think, because the problem arises substantially because uh, as people enter the EU, they're not dealt with at that point when it's perfectly obvious that they're migrants. And the French, um, there they are criticizing us for not taking people, 
Meanwhile, uh, Lithuania, uh, Poland and uh, uh, Belarus are at odds with support mm. from uh, the, uh, the, the Commission and the EU um, when they say, oh, no, no, this is wrong. People should not be uh, helped across the border, if not propelled across the border as they are at the moment, which is precisely what is happening between France and us. So why will the French not accept that these people are for them to deal with? So it's a combination, really. Yeah, they want our fish, don't they, Alp? They want our fish, which is in English waters, but they don't think these people are anything to do with them. So we have, they want our fish, but we've got to have these, these migrants. Um, <laughs> they, they want our fish. Um, and if you remember, we were quite tough when it came to uh, dealing with Iceland. Um, we were. When, uh, over, over cod, or well, it wasn't just cod, but essentially cod, well, the French, frankly, are taking a leaf out of uh, the Icelanders' book, I think, going back uh, 40, 50 years. Uh, they do want our fish. Uh, my own feeling is that migrants and fish have nothing to do with each other. Um, th these are two totally separate issues. And I, I have my views, as I, I know you do, on, on fish. But with regard to migrants, it's it's perfectly straightforward they have no right to uh, to be in france a lot of the time they very often have been denied asylum through the countries that they've come through these are safe countries perfectly capable of of dealing with with claimants and then returning them once they came um, if they don't qualify that is a matter for them to deal with, not to shunt them off in our direction in the way that's happening at the moment. I think that's disgraceful, frankly, and in, in some respects inhuman, the way that they are being dealt with on the other side of the channel. Absolutely wrong. However, our, our government clearly uh, doesn't seem to know what to do about it, and certainly the policies that they claim to have in place they're certainly not making any use of them. And I doubt that any policies that uh, come as a result of the Act of Parliament, which is now going through, uh, that they will make full use of those. That, I'm afraid, is, is where we are. And it's, it's very Indeed. sad and it's very shameful, really, that as, yeah. as a great country, we are failing to deal with this problem. Couldn't agree with you more. That's Alp Mehmet, who is the chairman of Migration Watch UK. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcast videos, opinion pieces and more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So a new study from the University of Athens shows that diet can cut dementia risk by up to a third. A study of more than a thousand people over three years revealed those with the least inflammatory diet were least likely to develop dementia. Uh, I'm joined now by Dr Linia Patel who's a registered dietitian and she's spokeswoman for the Association of UK Dietitians. Dr Patel what do you make of this study and what is a least inflammatory diet when it's at home? Okay well I'm very excited by this study being a dietitian and the fact that food is actually so powerful um, and actually the results are not surprising because we know that inflammation has an important underlying mechanism in the development of lots of diseases like dementia. 
Um, so what we call an anti-inflammatory diet is basically a diet that is uh, balanced and based on lots of fruit and vegetables, but also has um, a lot of plant-based foods so like your lentils and your legumes as well. Um, so it's just a balanced diet, really. Yeah, um, and has is this the first time? I mean, we all know we should eat healthy, balanced diets for a number of reasons, uh, weight and all the rest mm. of it. But is this the first time there's been a direct linkage with this sort of diet, doctor, and dementia? Not, not, not actually, uh, not really. There's been lots of links in the past because we know that actually, when inflammation persists day in and day out, um, that's the that's the problem, and that's what's linked to a lot of diseases like dementia or, or cancer and heart disease. And it's more about the type of dietary pattern you follow, although there are specific foods mentioned in the diet, like in the study, like um, people eating lots of fruit and vegetables and having yeah. lentils and tea and coffee. Um, it's about getting that balance right. So reducing your risk of things that cause inflammation, like refined carbohydrates, so white bread, pastries, fried food, French fries, um, sweetened drinks, um, and eating more whole foods. Um, and that obviously does include your fruits and vegetables and your lentils, um, but nuts as well and oily fish. Right. And um, I mean, I'm surprised. I, I just wouldn't have th- ever thought that, that an anti-inflammatory diet would include things like tea and coffee, which, of course, have caffeine in them. Yeah, so what's really interesting is is that tea and coffee contain something called um, phytonutrients. And it's those phytonutrients found in things, particularly green tea um, and also in coffee, um, that have these polyphenols. And they're protective compounds um, that are found in plants that reduce inflammation. Um, but again, it's always about moderation with that as well. Um, so this is not... Um, uh, the gateway to drinking as many cups of coffee as you want yeah. is actually saying that including some coffee um, and some herbal tea or green tea is going to be um, um, an additional uh, perk. Yeah, I'm just seeing here that they say that people on the uh, anti-inflammatory diet were drinking on average nine cups of coffee or tea during an average week. I think I probably drink nine cups of tea in two days, doctor. Am I, ma- am I ma- <laughs> making a terrible mess of this? Well, in terms of phytonutrients, you're doing very well. But in terms of caffeine, obviously, there are recommendations in terms of how much caffeine you should have. So the, um, an adult should be having 400 milligrams of caffeine a day. So it's kind of finding that balance. So I think you're very much over the caffeine intake um, in terms of, uh, of your cups of tea if you're having that many because there's 75 milligrams in one cup of tea. Is there really? And just finally, what about alcohol, uh, doctor? In this diet, in this anti-inflammatory diet, which is all about healthier food, no white bread and all the rest of it, can we have a glass of red wine or a glass of white wine, or is that is that bad for dementia? Yeah, so um, the study actually didn't particularly look at alcohol, but again, the things that are protective that we're seeing in plants that give the plants their colour, these polyphenols, are what um, have this magical link. So if we were, were going to have alcohol, there could be an argument that the red wine, because it's the, the color of the grapes, um, that produces that beneficial effect. Um, but other than that, um, I would say it's really important with alcohol that you stay within the recommended um, um, units, um, because that's much more important. So drink the drink you want, but just stay within the recommended units. Very good advice. That's Dr. Linia Patel, who's a registered dietitian and spokeswoman for the Association of UK Dietitians. Thanks for joining us. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood's here with the latest headlines from the world of sport. No surprise there, Matt. Stephen Gerrard, he's quit Glasgow Rangers, where he'd enjoyed some success. He's taking the reins at the struggling Premier League club Aston Villa. 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah, he's uh, all signed, sealed, and done yesterday. Um, and uh, and he's very much looking forward to getting on with the job. He's got a few days to work with the players before the Premier League um, resumes next weekend. Uh, and obviously, he's got a, he's got a lot to do. Uh, Villa are just above the relegation zone. Um, they've gone backwards this season under Dean Smith. I mean, whether Dean Smith should have been sacked or not for the first real um, blip in his managerial career at Villa is another story. But he has been. Gerard's in. He's got some work to do to get them away from the relegation zone. But I think it's a good move for him because the club suits him. It's not. Uh, he's not going from Rangers, uh, who were a very big club, but obviously there's not much uh, competition other than Celtic in the Scottish League. He's now going to a sort of mid-sized club. Uh, it would have been too soon for him, to, I think, to go to one of the, the mega clubs. So he's gone to a mid-sized club where he can have some success because he's basically got a very good team there. There's the basis of a very good team. So it's easy for him to quickly get results and to move that team up the table and to, to, to do a very good job. If you were going somewhere like Norwich, for example, who are already pretty much marooned at the bottom of the table, uh, I think that would be a thankless task for whoever's going to take that job. So this seems a good job for Gerard, a good way for him to prove his credentials, uh, and it'd be interesting to see how he gets on. Absolutely. Now, big match tomorrow, England versus Australia at the rugby. Some of my colleagues I know are going to the match. They are they rather bizarrely asked if I wanted to accompany them. You know, the answer was, no, thanks. Is it friendly? Yeah, no, somebody else has got them, I'm afraid, Matt. Is it a friendly match or is it a cup match? Yeah, so it's one of these autumn internationals, which are which they count as test matches. There's no kind of uh, there's no kind of cup to be won at the end of these autumn internationals. They're just a chance for the for the uh, southern hemisphere teams to come north and play against the northern hemisphere teams. Um, and and England, after their um, comprehensive victory last week over Tonga, have now got a, a proper challenge um, in Australia uh, at Twickenham tomorrow, as you say. So it will be fascinating to watch. Always a great game when it's England v Australia. Always exciting. England have got a very good record of late against the Aussies. They've won the last seven uh, test matches against Australia. So they're on a great run. I fully expect England uh, to win again. Australia actually lost to Scotland last weekend. Uh, and without being disrespectful to Scotland, that shows kind of where, where Australia um, are at. Having said that, Australia also recently beat South Africa, the world champions, twice. So um, it won't be plain sailing for England. But the fascinating thing will be it's the first start against the Tier 1 Test Nation for this lad, Marcus Smith, the, the Quinns um, standoff who everyone is so excited about. So we'll get a chance to see him from the off. He was very good when he came off the bench last weekend, but this is his chance to start at 10 uh, and really set the tempo for England. Uh, and how he gels with Owen Farrell, the guy whose position he's basically sort of taken, who's a senior pro who'll be outside him, and how they gel uh, will also be fascinating. So, yeah, really looking forward to that. And finally, Matt, New Zealand taking on Australia in the T20 cricket. That was the, the tournament we thought we were going to win. Am I right in thinking most England fans are rooting for New Zealand to beat the Aussies? Oh, 100%. I mean, always, obviously, always we want to get one over the Aussies if we can. Uh, and we don't want to see them win anything. And with the Ashes round the corner, I don't know, they're two very different types of cricket. Test match cricket against T20, they couldn't be more different. But what we don't want as England fans is the Aussies, some of these guys obviously playing in this T20 team will be in the Ashes side. And we don't want these Aussies going to, uh, heading into the Ashes with a bounce and uh, spring in their step, uh, with a grin on their face. Uh, having just won the World Cup. So we would uh, we would very much be supporting New Zealand tomorrow. Of course, New Zealand are, are a brilliant side and a gracious and magnanimous side who were um, 
very uh, very gracious when they lost that World Cup final to England at Lords, that thriller, when uh, when they had every right to moan about the way that went, and they didn't. They uh, they were um, they were brilliant in the way they handled that uh, heartbreaking defeat. Really, uh, so it would be nice to see them uh, win a trophy themselves. Um, they've got a record of getting to finals and not quite getting over the line. So it'd be good to see them win. And, it, and you know, from a purely England point of view, it'd be good to see the Aussies lose. Absolutely. That's Matt Gatwood, Deputy Sports Editor, with all the latest. Thanks for joining us. Two-thirds of smaller roads in some part of the country are literally crumbling and riddled with potholes. That's according to new official figures. The sheer number which have been allowed to fall into the worst red condition has been branded hugely concerning by motoring groups. In Derbyshire, for instance, 68% of minor and rural roads were in the red category in the last year. I'm joined now by Mark Murrell, who's a former mayor of Brackley in Northamptonshire, but you will know him better as Mr Pothole, because he spent years and years highlighting Britain's crumbling roads. What's the answer, Mark, if I can call you that? It's getting worse, not better. Yes, I mean, there's a massive road maintenance backlog. Um, just for the carriageways, it's estimated to be about £10 billion. Uh, the answer is um, an annual resurfacing program of an extra one and a half billion pounds a year because it's uh, a waste of money repairing potholes if we're not resurfacing the roads we're going to go in ever decreasing circles with patch and mend patch and mend it needs investment it also needs some spark uh, capital investment because I've been doing some work with a number of companies particularly JCB with their pothole pro that's a really good piece of kit and would as efficiency would speed up repairs but accounts was a strap because they had a 400 million pound cut in road maintenance uh, budgets this year uh, which is about 20 percent so uh, it is very difficult however I don't think councils are as efficient as they could be and even on those figures some are not realistic about the true condition of their roads no. Uh, and what's infuriating to me, I live in North London, uh, I've got friends in Brighton, the whole time the council's digging up the flipping roads and laying it, putting in extra cycle super highways, uh, which, which slow traffic down even more. And yet the quality of the roads there alongside continue to decline and deteriorate. Yes. Um, I mean, cyclists, as you said, uh, are very vulnerable. I mean, there was a report uh, the other year, 250 cyclists have actually been killed or seriously maimed as a result of potholes. Yeah. But those roads that haven't had any treatment like that are appalling. And the first metre and a half from a curb is dangerous for cyclists. I mean, other people suffer damage to vehicles, which is, you know, uh, they're paying enough taxes as it is, uh, and it hits financially. And there was a report a while ago that it's actually badly maintained roads, cost the economy £5 billion a year. So some smart investment uh, of another £1.5 billion on resurfacing, plus the 500 puddle fund, uh, plus some capital uh, investment grants would make a difference. And that's what I'm pushing for National Puddle Day on the 14th of uh, January uh, uh, next year. And, um, of course, the government is keen, uh, is spending a lot of more money than it has done in the past, the end of austerity. We're trying to turbocharge the economy after the pandemic. You would have thought the quality of roads wouldn't have deteriorated so sharply when we had a lockdown, when there was barely a car on the road and also great time for highways departments to fix the highways. Yeah, I mean, some councils were proactive during the lockdown, but at the first bit of lockdown, everything stopped, you know, because of the world we were in. But some did actually get in there and do some work where they're less uh, less cost of traffic management. So applaud those ones that did take advantage. But unfortunately, the roads are... uh, 
a state where even with the general weather conditions and frosting uh, and rain uh, and a minimal amount of use, they've got to a breaking point. So yes, uh, they would have deteriorated markedly if there'd been more traffic as well. I suppose just finally, not much is going to get done about this um, because it, it, uh, I'm just looking at the figures. Hammersmith and Fulham, 50% of roads need attention. Bath and North East Somerset, 42%. It's, a, it's the whole country, isn't it? I mean, where, yeah, do they, I mean, where do they start, really? Well, as I said, they need a, an, an annual uh, resurfacing programme year on year, not just a, a, a parliament, a long-term investment like other countries. Japan invests 25 years in the future for their roads. Uh, we need to take the ball by the horns because it's the lifeblood of the economy. Um, I mean, you know, local roads are bad. Even some of the uh, motorways and A roads are bad. Uh, there's been a cutback in uh, maintenance budgets for what was... Uh, highways England now national highways there's billions of pounds for smart motorways uh, that's obviously uh, controversial because of the deaths on them yet the actual maintenance has been reduced and therefore I've seen gantries with smart motorways wider lanes but with sections that have got poles in Carty just finally have you ever fallen in a pothole or come off your bike on a pot because of a pothole no, fortunately I'm not I so I have a sixth sense I can drive down the road and tell where most are going to be so if they're going to do automated cars perhaps they need to map my brain <laughs> now that's a very interesting thought that wouldn't cost too much either that's mark morell former mayor of brackley northamptonshire better known as mr pothole whose campaign continues and mark we'll talk to you again if we may on january the 14th national pothole day and see if there's been any progress yeah by all means lovely Thank great to much. talk to you that's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I am Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back on Monday. Have yourselves a great weekend and good night. Good night.